why are there 10 virgins going out to meet this bridegroom? What kind of wedding is this? And who is this groom? Should we be concerned for him? Some of your Bibles will have a note at the end of Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, that tells you that some manuscripts add a few words to this first verse. Does anyone have this note? Will you raise your hand if you see it? Does anyone want to guess what the few words are that some manuscripts add? Anybody? Come on, it's easy. They add that ten virgins went out to meet the bridegroom and and the bride. Now, we are pretty certain this wasn't originally in this passage. Now, as people, you know, the, the original manuscripts of the Gospels and of the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter too, th these were used so frequently that they often became worn out and the type of paper would cr begin to crumble. And so people were quickly making handwritten copies of these that they could spread out, that they could share. But there were sometimes additions like this that crept in. But the, the good thing is that we have so many manuscripts that we're able to tell what's likely original and what's not. Now, the fact that this is in some manuscripts just tells you how awkward it was for some people to be copying this story and for there to be no bride. Instead, ten virgins. Now, there's a reason it shouldn't be there. And we're going to get to that. But as we're nearing the season of Advent, which focuses on waiting for Christ, we are in a passage in Matthew about waiting, waiting for the kingdom of heaven to arrive. The irony is we've been in COVID for eight months waiting. And it's actually seasons like this when our church calendar makes the most sense. The reason we practice waiting is so we can develop muscles for times in life when we really need them. Uh, some of you will know that a few of us from our church went to Uganda earlier this year, just before the travel ban went into effect. We got back home, and we were in an area where the Lord's Resistant Ar Resistance Army had practiced guerrilla warfare, raiding villages for 10 to 15 years. And the bishop, Bishop Alfred Olwa, told us that for that 10 to 15 years was essentially a Lent, <laughs> a very extended Lenten season for his people. Now, of all the things that God's kingdom is compared to, of all the ways that God's relationship to earth and to us is described, the most common picture that we have in the Bible is a wedding. From Adam and Eve, who were joined together in the garden in a one flesh union, to the erotic love poetry of the Song of Solomon, to the tragic marriage of Hosea, and Gomer, to Jesus's parables, and finally to the visions in the book of Revelation, the church joined to Christ as a bride is joined to her husband, heaven joined to earth in a final wedding feast. Humans can only begin to imagine what God's kingdom is like, but the closest picture we have of his relationship to us is a marriage, a husband giving himself for his bride and sacrificial love. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. This is what he says that Christ has done for us, for his people. He's given himself as a sacrificial offering so that we could become his pure bride. 
Now, the story in Matthew has 10 virgins going out to meet the bridegroom again. Jesus is foreshadowing something that the Apostle Paul will say later. In the same way that marriage is a mystery, two people become one. The church, too, even though it's many, is actually one. Just as the body is one and has many members, Paul says, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. In the Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So this parable that Jesus tells is actually a story about the church, Christ's bride, waiting for Christ. And I'm going to ask two questions out of this story. First, what are we waiting for? And second, how do we wait? So here's the first question. What are we waiting for? And on the one hand, the answer is really simple. We're waiting for Christ. We're waiting for our bridegroom to show up. He gave himself for us as a sacrificial offering. He left for a time and sent his spirit to empower the church for his work. But we're waiting for him to return. And the church has been waiting for a long time. This parable affirms and encourages us in that waiting. So the virgins go out to meet the bridegroom, but he doesn't show up when they expect him to show up. They have to wait. And this story pivots on some of the uh, virgins being prepared for that waiting. And for that reason, they're called wise, while others are not prepared. And for that reason, they're called fools. Now, even though there's lots of language in the Bible that speaks with urgency about the return of Christ, there's also this language that alludes to a lengthy period of waiting. The urgency actually has more to do with the fact that we don't know when he's coming. His return is always going to be a surprise for us. So in that sense, his return is always imminent, always urgent. We should always be prepared, living in faithful readiness for his return. I've heard that this is the way it is for groups like the Navy SEALs. They're an elite force prepared for the most important of missions. But most of their time is spent simply remaining ready. Ready to respond within a nick of time. Preparing, preparing over and over again for the moment when they're called upon. So there's always a sense of urgency to this kind of waiting. We're waiting for Christ. We're waiting for our bridegroom. We have been waiting for a long time and we should expect to wait. He will arrive. On the other hand, The answer to what we're waiting for, to this question, what are we waiting for? It's also more complicated. So think about biblical prophecy as concentric circles, like the ripples on a pond after you throw a stone. Think about this. You throw a stone and there are the big ripples that you wait for. And as a child, you want to see how large the ripples can become, don't you? You're most fascinated by the largest ripple. But there's also the small ripples. And this is how biblical prophecy works within the world, within time. There are usually stages of fulfillment within biblical prophecy. There are imminent events, small ripples. And then there are events that occur later, larger ripples. Now, when we hear parables like this one, we think of the largest ripple, the final coming of Christ. And on one level, this parable does speak to that. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has just alerted his disciples to a more imminent ripple that's going to happen. 
a judgment on the nation of Israel that will occur within their lifetime. This judgment is going to come because of their rejection of Jesus. And Israel is going to keep picking political fights with Rome. And Rome will eventually show up on their doorstep and they will wipe out Israel's temple. So just before this, Jesus has said about all these buildings that the disciples are amazed by, one stone will not be left on another. Jesus is saying to his disciples that that day too is a day and an hour that you don't know. Now, I realize that event, it may not feel like it has much bearing on our lives today. But, but give this story a chance. Try to imagine what that day, when it did come, would have been like for those disciples who were listening to Jesus in that moment. These disciples will soon be driven out of town by the Jewish leaders who manage that temple. Now, I'm not saying the disciples were going to throw a party when the temple was destroyed. And I'm not saying this brought them joy to see that temple destroyed. But there would be a real sense in which Christ visited his disciples when this happened. In which Christ vindicated them for their faithfulness to him, saying, I'll choose to believe Christ. The temple's destruction would be a genuine coming of Christ within time, within their lives. Now, what does this mean for us? We are all waiting for Christ. If you call on Christ and believe in him as your Lord and King, your Redeemer, you are waiting for Christ. You're waiting for his final return, the big ripple, if you will. But while we wait, Christ still does come to us now. He comes in small ways all the time. He visits us in the midst of our lives, especially if we're watching and waiting for him. Uh, we read this passage this week in our staff meeting and we're praying through it. And Kelly brought up a line from a poem that is one of her favorites. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And if you are watching alert to Christ in your life, you will find that Christ does come to you. He does visit you in the midst of life, even while you're waiting for him to come in more fullness. So how are you attentive to Christ? How are you watching and waiting for him in your life right now? Where are the areas you've forgotten to look for him? Are you just not expected him to show up. Maybe you're a pessimist in life and you struggle in the little details of your life to really believe that Christ wants to show up and he wants to meet you. Christ comes to us as a groom comes to his bride to show his affection and his protection, his jealous love for his bride. This is my bride. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for Christ. We're waiting for him to come in the big ways and also in the small. Second, how do we wait? I'm going to give you the answer and then I'm going to explain it. Through the Holy Spirit. We wait through the Holy Spirit. If you're in Alpha, you've heard a lot about the Holy Spirit lately. I'm not just making this up because I've been in Alpha, saturated in, here, in the Holy Spirit's I want to show you how the Holy Spirit shows up in this story. 
There's all this business about oil. The wise virgins bring extra oil to keep their lamps lit. The foolish ones do not. And earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said his disciples were to be the lamps that give light for the world so that people would see their good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. How did Jesus' disciples produce good works? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, oil is a symbol for God's Spirit. So in the Old Testament, David is anointed with oil and we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. In Acts chapter 10, we hear, we hear this about Jesus. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Now sometimes the Spirit's work does create a spectacle. The Spirit rushed on David from that day forward. But often the Holy Spirit's work is subtle It's always lasting, though. It does things like enabling us to wait and burn with the fire of Christ while we wait. So in one of our books we read with our kids at home, one of the repeated lines is, waiting is not easy. And that's truth. It is not. Waiting for Christ is not easy. Whether it's in the short term waiting for him to respond to our prayers about a situation, waiting for him to work in the lives of our children, waiting for him to reveal himself in some awful situation we're facing. Or whether it's in the long term, waiting for him to return, to finally make things right, to make the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven one. Waiting is not easy. And all the virgins in this story get tired and sleep. Did you notice that? Whether they're wise or foolish, they all sleep. It's human to grow weary with waiting. But when the bridegroom does arrive, only those with the extra oil are ready to meet him and to be with him. Now, I want to tell you something that's really surprising in this story. Do you remember the passage in the book of Acts that says it's more blessed to give than to receive? That Christians should share with those who are in need? But the foolish virgins ask the wise ones, won't you share with us some of your oil? And they say, no. (laughs) What is it about this? As much as Christians are to be known for sharing with others, there are limits to the things that we can give each other. Listen. The wise virgins aren't able to share their oil, and that speaks to the fact that all of us are responsible before God. Spiritual freeloading, depending on others to supply the things that I need to seek for myself, that can only get us so far. You are responsible before God to be filled up with the oil of His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the oil for life. He is the continual power and presence of Christ, enabling us to wait and to do more than wait, to burn as a light for Christ in the midst of our waiting. If you're a Christian, if you call on Jesus to forgive your sins and to be your king, then you absolutely have the Spirit and you have access to His power in your life. But, hear me out. The Spirit is the most often ignored within the triune God. He is the least often called on for help. And we are powerless without Him. Powerless. 
You know, lamps, the kind that Jesus was talking about in his day, they're only a receptacle. We, we can plug one in and turn it on and it doesn't seem like anything else is needed. But lamps were a receptacle. They had to be filled up to do anything, right? The oil was the substance that was the most important. And this is what Jesus is saying about us. We as human beings are receptacles. We have to be filled up with his spirit so that we can burn with his light and his love. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Christ. We're looking for him now and forever. And how do we wait? We wait through the spirit who gives us the ongoing presence of Christ. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.